together. This is the word of the Lord. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpeh of uh, Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and stayed with them all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Harith. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you all have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of the Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the sons of Jesse? And that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who's the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and, and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, uh, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob The city of the priests he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I've occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. And we ask that now the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we are returning this morning to our study of the Old Testament book of, of 1 Samuel. Every year during the, the fall months, we, we look at a book of the Old Testament because the fall is kind of the time leading up to Christmas. Christmas is the coming of Christ. And so the, the books of the Bible that are before the coming of Christ is the Old Testament. So we always study the Old Testament. We've been studying 1 Samuel for three falls and this is the third fall. We'll finish First Samuel by the end of the year, and then we'll start. Uh, we'll look at the Gospel of Mark starting in uh, January. And if you're not familiar with the the story of First Samuel, I'll just give you a kind of a brief summary of what's happened uh, leading up to uh, this story that I just uh, read to you. First uh, Samuel basically tells the story about King David and how uh, David. Uh, became the great king of Israel. David was a king in Israel about 1,000 B.C. It's about 400 years after uh, the Israelites had, had come out of Egypt and Moses led them out of Egypt and led them into the promised land. And so during those 400 years, uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel were, were ruled by these kind of local judges that were all in the, in the different tribes of, of Israel. And so earlier in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel say, you know what, we don't want these judges ruling us anymore. We want to have a king just like all the other nations have a king, we want to have a king who's going to defend us and take care of us. And so basically they were saying, we don't want the Lord to be our king. We want a human king like the other nations. And so the Lord says, okay, you can have a king. And uh, the first king of Israel was King Saul, who we read about in the story uh, uh, today. And Saul started off okay as a king, but then he had some blunders and then specifically disobeys the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, you're not going to be the king anymore. And the prophet Samuel anoints David to be his replacement. And David becomes a, a military hero. You know, he's most famous for killing uh, the giant uh, Goliath. And so all the women in Israel would sing about David and his military victories. And Saul becomes very envious and he starts hating David. And so he wants to kill David. And so in uh, chapter 21 that we looked at last fall, that's where we left off the story. David is fleeing from Saul and he's gone to live among the Philistines, a neighboring people. And uh, Saul is now hunting him to put him to death. And so that's where we pick up in the story. And today uh, we are looking at a story about how Saul's distrust, not only of David, not only of the Lord, but of everyone around him, led him to do a terrible act of evil. And uh, he kills a whole community of priests, their, all their families. I mean, it's absolutely brutal. This is a brutal story. And you see what leads him to do all of that is in verse 13, he says, Why have you conspired against me? So Saul is a man of suspicion. And I think this is a helpful topic for us to explore because suspicion affects our lives both in small ways and large ways. You know, if you have suspicion in a marriage where everything your spouse says, you kind of question, what do they really mean by that? Do you really want harm from me? 
then that's going to erode the trust in the marriage and even the ability to communicate in marriage. Or, or even uh, uh, if you um, don't trust anyone in your life, not just in your marriage, but in your church, in your, in your family, you can't have relationships if you don't trust people. And some of you might say, I see that, that I, because I don't trust people, I don't have people close in my life who know me and I open up about because I'm suspicious of people. I'm distrustful. Of, of, so on a small scale, suspicion really affects our lives. But also on a large scale, you imagine in a society, societies are held together by trust. And, you know, when the people begin to lose trust in the institutions of a society, and, you know, we have a lot of that happening in our culture. There's an erosion of trust happening. The, the society begins to fall apart. It just can't hold together. And that doesn't mean that suspicion is always wrong. But we should be aware that one of the ways Satan tries to destroy people and relationships and communities is through the sowing of suspicion. And even as Christians should be suspicious of evil in the world, at the center of who we are, we are not distrustful people because we believe that behind all of nature, behind all of history, is a good and wise and powerful God who is directing all things according to his purposes. And so in some ways we are, can be suspicious, but on a large scale, we are at the end of the day trusting people. We are at core a people of trust. And so today I'd like to look at the two main characters of 1 Samuel, uh, David and Saul, and just answer two questions for us as we look at those two characters. And this is what they are. Is what does Saul teach us about being a person of suspicion? And what does David teach us about being a person of trust? What does Saul teach us about being a person of suspicion? What does David teach us about being a person of trust? And, you know, these old stories have so many little details that are so insightful to human life. And so I, I hope that there's some details from this passage that you can find helpful that apply to your life today. So two questions about being people of suspicion. And the first is this. What does Saul teach us about being a person of suspicion? What does Saul teach us about being a person of suspicion? And Saul, King Saul, is one of the most emotional and psychologically explosive characters in the whole Bible. He's kind of a fa fascinating character study. And in this passage, what we see happens is that just the very small seeds of envy that started with Saul have now grown into this full tree of rage and anger and violence. And, uh, and so, uh, even though he's an extreme example, it's still helpful for us to say, to say, what does a heart of suspicion look like in Saul? And I want to list off four qualities that we see in, fall, in, in uh, Saul, okay? Four qualities that we see in Saul that make him a person of suspicion. The first is that he sits on the seat of judgment. He is ready to judge. He's primed to judge. And you see that there in verse 6 where it says, Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah. Gibeah is basically the capital city where, the, you know, he's the king. That's where he lives. 
And, uh, and he was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the, on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Now, if, you know, if you've read the book of 1 Samuel, you know the spear in Saul's hand is an important kind of object in the story. It's the thing that he tried to kill David with when David was in his court. And he, tried, he goes in these rages, and he gets in these moods, and he tries to kill people. And so here he is with all his servants around, and everyone's kind of tense because he's sitting on the judgment seat with the spear in his hand. And everyone's like, what's he going to do? Don't say the wrong thing. And his very body posture is ready to judge someone. Suspicion and distrust make us judgy. In the workplace, if you don't trust someone, or in your marriage, if there's a lack of trust, or there's someone here at church that you don't trust them, what happens is you begin to interpret things that are actually very benign as indicators of harm because everything the person does is loaded with the suspicion, you are against me, or you have another motive going on in this. And so there's this judgment of everything, and it colors everything that we see. And that thought, the people are against me, has been growing inside of Saul. And so it leads to a second quality that we see in Saul. Not only that he's sitting in the seat of judgment, but second, that he suspects a growing conspiracy. That Saul suspects there's a growing conspiracy. And you see it in verse 7. It says, And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? And so basically what Saul's envisioning here is that David has gone to all of his servants and made promises to them. He say, if you let me be king instead of Saul, I'm going to make you rich. I'm going to give you a field and I'm going to make you a commander. I'm going to give you positions of power which is totally unrealistic that David's been doing that. David is on the run. He's, you know, he's among the Philistines. He's not telling anyone where he is. He's basically homeless. And Saul still thinks, despite he's homeless, he's constructed this whole elaborate conspiracy. It's unrealistic. And I'll tell you, this is one thing about... Um, conspiracy theories. You know, Saul's got a conspiracy theory that's growing in his mind. And, you know, I'm reluctant to even use that expression, conspiracy theory, because over the past few years, just that label, conspiracy theory, was used as a way of just dismissing someone, you know, who wanted to question the government and what they were doing in COVID. And a bunch of things labeled conspiracy theories turned out to be true. I mean, a lot more than ever in my life over the last couple of years. But someone else uh, pointed out to me recently that one of the issues with some conspiracy theories is that they require evil people to be absolute masterminds to put together this conspiracy. I mean, they must be brilliant. And you see that in movies, you know, where I, I think of like Christopher Nolan's Batman movies and, you know, Joker will be in jail and yet he's got bombs going off just at the right time outside of jail. And it was all so masterfully orchestrated. And you're like... And we think, well, you know, evil people can just pull it off. You know, evil people don't blunder and make mistakes, and they're finite and limited just like the rest of us. And, uh, and what we can do is we can give a godlike omniscience to our enemies, as if they've just planned all this out. And it creates in us a general spirit of, di of distrust in everything, because the distrust has spread into everything. And it makes us both cynical and anxious. 
You just imagine you live in a world where the evil are the masterminds who are omnipresent, omni-knowledgeable. It's going to give you a deep sense of anxiety and cynicism. And so Saul is sitting on the seat of judgment, and he suspects that there's this growing conspiracy around him. But there's a third thing we see in him is that then, because of his suspicion, he ignores the evidence. There's clear evidence to him that he ignores. And when we have hearts of distrust and suspicion, we're unwilling to hear evidence that is contrary to our intuitions. And that's a very important thing to know. You know, some of you say, I'm a very intuitive person. I just can read people well. And, you know, I just get a sense about things. And intuition is very powerful. It can take all these data points and synthesize it, and we don't even know how we do it. And it is very powerful, but you should also know that your intuition is very wrong. I mean, this has been studied, how wrong your intuition is. It's wrong way more than you think it is. And, uh, and, you, uh, and so intuition is, is very powerful, but it's wrong. And what you see happens in the story there in verse 9. It says, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now, what's happening here is there's this evil man named Doeg who knows there's this conspiracy going in Saul's mind, and he wants to feed the conspiracy. And, uh, and what he's talking about is in the story from the chapter just before this, 1 uh, Samuel 21, was that when David was, uh, you know, on the run, he came to this little village called Nob. And Nob is where the tabernacle was. It's just outside of Gibeah. It's near the, the capital city. And there were all these priests who were running the tabernacle. It was like a worship center. And David came there and said, hey, me and my men, we're hungry. We need some bread. So the priest gave them bread and prays for them and sends them off because he thinks, oh, you know, this is Saul's servant. It's his son-in-law. It's his, you know, he's the armor bearer. And so I'm just helping Saul. And so um, this is all totally reasonable. But Saul calls all of these priests from Nob to appear before him. And this is what he says in verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me. And so in Saul's mind, this conspiracy is not just David and uh, Saul's son, Jonathan. They, they were like best friends. It's grown into, hundred, grown into hundreds of people are now a part of this conspiracy. And Ahimelech responds with evidence. Let me show you the evidence. Your suspicion is unfounded. And you see it in verse 14. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? And who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let, the king impute, uh, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little." Basically, what he does is he gives a whole history. He's like, look at it. David has served you. I have served you. I have not turned against you. I'm trying to convince you. I am for you. I'm just doing what I've always done. There's nothing strange happening here. But notice that Saul doesn't even consider this evidence. It doesn't matter. The heart that doesn't trust 
can't hear evidence. The heart that doesn't trust cannot reason. And the results of this, his unwillingness to listen, is absolutely tragic. Look at what happens in verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Ahimelech has been a faithful priest to him. He's like, you're going to die in your whole house. And the king said to the guard who stood with him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. And so Saul is calling for the execution of literally hundreds of men, women, and children. It's absolutely terrible act of evil. And in order to do this, he has to do a fourth thing, though. Okay, so he's sitting in judgment. He's got this growing conspiracy in his mind. He's not willing to look at the evidence. And then the last thing he does is he allies with the wicked. And so Saul gives this order, kill all the people in Nob. And what happens, the second part of verse 17, it says, but the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So this is an important act of resistance that all these servants say to the king, we're not going to do it. Absolutely not. We're not going to go kill all these innocent people, and we refuse to do it. And so what does Saul do is he allies himself with this evil man, Doeg. And verse 18 says, Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the ephod, the linen ephod. And then he kills all their families, their women, the children, even all their animals. And it's just terrible. And so what we see in this passage is an extreme example of how a heart of distrust and suspicion becomes ultimately cynical, does not trust the Lord, and it lets sin and aggression into a person's life. And so the question that we have to face first with this first, as we look at Saul as an example of suspicion, is to say, would you say at your core, are you a person of suspicion or a person of trust? Being a Christian means that we believe that everything that happens in life happens under the sovereign watch and care of the Almighty God. Evil is not the omnipotent, omniscient one. The good and wise God is the all-knowing and all-powerful one. And so at core, we are meant to be people of trust. And this is what allows us to draw close to God, to draw close to other people. This is what allows us to be well-reasoned people and not reactionary. And so while on the one hand, Saul shows us what it looks like to be a person of suspicion, you know, sitting in judgment, suspecting conspiracies all around, ignoring well-reasoned evidence from wise people, and then getting the help of wicked people to side with us, On the other side of that, we see David. And so that leads to our second question that we're going to look at. So not only how Saul is an example of suspicion, but second, what does David teach us about being a person of trust? What does David teach us about being a person of trust? Now, I know that some of you say, or are you just saying that we should just trust everyone? I mean, that is so naive to just trust everyone. And, uh, of course, that's absolutely not true that you should trust everyone. Uh, David shows us what righteous suspicion looks like. David is on the run. He does not trust King Saul. And so he's like, I 
King Saul should not be trusted. I'm not going to tell him where I am. I'm hiding from him. I'm evading him. And David is suspicious of Doeg as well. You know, David met Doeg back in Nob, back in chapter 21, and his spidey senses were like, that guy is not good. He's, don't trust him. And that's what he says in verse 22. He says, and David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. He had a bad intuition about Doeg, and he was right. And so David is not naively trusting But the opening paragraph of this passage shows us three things that made David at his core a person of trust. And they're the same three things that God uses in our lives to make us people of trust as well. And this is our church, our family, and God's word. And I want to talk about each of these briefly, okay? So how does God make us people of trust? Well, the first thing is through our church. God teaches us to be trusting people again, not just suspicious, not just distrustful, but trusting again through our church. And this passage begins with a description of the community that had gathered around David. And this, this is one of those moments where, where David most resembles Jesus. You know, David was Jesus' ancestor. Jesus was called the son of David. And you see, look at, look at David here in verse 1 at the beginning of this passage. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was distressed, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became their captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So there's this whole group of outcasts that come to David. David's on the run. He's an outcast. And they come to him, and they, and they trust him. And uh, they, they've come to follow David, and they all have a rocky past, and yet they bond with each other, and they bond with their leader and their captain. And this is exactly who we are as a church. We are people that have experienced distressing things in our lives. We're all people who are indebted. You know, if you're not financially in debt, you have a huge debt of sin. That's why we're here is because only Jesus can pay the huge debt of sin that we owe. So we're indebted people and even bitter in soul, people that have not only sinned against others but have been sinned against, and it's deeply hurt our lives. And so we have come here uh, to Jesus so that he can give us new life. And so I will tell you, if you are a distrusting person, You know, if you keep people at a distance, and maybe that's made it hard for you to have close friends in your life, because I'm always keeping people at a distance, the most important thing you need in your life is a church. You'll come here uh, and you realize that you you shouldn't trust everyone in the world, but there are people you should trust. There are people that you should let into your life that you should depend on, and that should depend on you. And this group is probably a group of guys in this story who have a lot of reasons to distrust people. You know, they're in debt. People are after them. They're bitter in soul. People have hurt them in their lives. But they've come to trust David, and he's a fresh source of hope in their lives. And that's exactly what a church is for. And so the first, uh, we learn to trust through our church. But that doesn't take away one of the most fundamental places that God intends for trust to be formed in us. And that's also second through our family. I think God intends for trust to be formed in us, not just through our church, but also through our family. And, and part of what's happening in this story is David's on the run. He's being hunted by King Saul. And so he's worried about his family. You see it there in verse 3. It says, And David went from there to Mizpeh of Moab, 
And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, this is an interesting part of the story that David turns to the king of Moab for help with his family. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, it's a little surprising because the Moabites were kind of old enemies of the Israelites. When the Israelites came out of Egypt and Moses was leading them, they're wandering around the wilderness, and they go to the Moabites to ask for aid, and the Moabites shut them down. And the Lord was like, my people were poor, and they asked you for help, and you shut them down. You are under my judgment, the Moabites. And so Deuteronomy 23 says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, even to the tenth generation. But it turns out that there's one Moabite in particular that's very highly honored in the Old Testament. And her name's Ruth. She has a book of the Bible written about her. And Ruth was David's great-grandmother. And so when David turns to the Moabites, while he's being hunted, he's actually turning to his relatives, his extended family, his cousins. There's like, I don't know where to go. I've been shunned by my people. I'm having to flee. Who am I going to go to? You know what? I'm going to go to my family. And, uh, and now some of you, when you think about trust and distrust and suspicion, some of you will say, well, it's really in my family where I learned to not trust people. I, it's because of what my family was like. I, I, my heart has kind of been protective. If that's you, I'm, I'm sorry that that's been your experience. And an important part of your, God's work in your life is to know that's not what God intends for a family. And it doesn't have to be that way. But I think that because of our awareness of the failures of our families, we often underappreciate them. And, you know, I was, I was thinking of my own brother. My, my brother got a, a job at Pixar in the late 90s when Pixar was just starting. Pixar had made one movie. I think it was the first Toy Story movie. And he was a computer programmer, and he got this really hot job as he's 22 years old, and he moves down to the Bay Area. I'm going to live in California. I'm going to l- work for a tech company. And uh, 20 years later, I was talking to him, and he was going through a really hard season in his life, and I was really surprised to hear him say, he said, you know, when I got this job down in the Bay Area, it was nowhere on my mind to think I should live near my family. And then, you know, he's raised kids and raising kids and having a family, it's a hard thing, and he said it would have really been nice to have my family. There wasn't anywhere on his radar that I actually need them. We were made to need our family. And I think that happens in life. I've seen that with people where they have family members that they're really frustrated with for a long time. And then they go through some hard things and you're like, wow, you know who I wish I could be with is my brother or my parents. <laughs> and I never thought I would say that. And, uh, and that's because God has made families to teach us that we need people. I need people. And as my family is where I learned that. And so how does God shape us into trusting people? It's through our church, the community of the church. It's through our family. But the last thing we see in this passage is through his word. That we learn to be trusting through God's word. And one of the big differences between David and Saul is their regard for God's word. And you see in verse 5 there how it says, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And so here's a prophet who's speaking. What prophets do? They're the mouthpiece of God. They speak God's word. And David heard God's words from the prophet, and he did it. 
And it turns out this is the first time that we hear about the prophet Gad in 1 Samuel. And he, he ends up being kind of a lifelong friend of David. He shows up in the end of David's life in 2 Samuel when David does a, a, a census. He tries to count all the people in Israel to see how big his army is. And it's kind of to feed his pride. And who's the one who comes to deliver the bad news that God is going to judge him for that? Well, it's the prophet Gad, who has been with him all these years, and the one who faithfully spoke to him God's word. But here in David's great trial, he receives the word of God and obeys it. There is nothing in the world that has the power to form trust in our hearts like the word of God. When you read it, when you hear it preached, When you pray God's word, when you talk about God's word, it's filled with promises. It's filled with commands that when you do them, you see that God is good and has good plans for us. But most importantly, God's word reveals to us the God who is worthy of our trust. It reveals to us Jesus, who like David, gathers a community of those bitter in soul, those whose hearts are distrustful, and he teaches us to trust again. And we are all born with hearts that don't trust God. And then we live in a sinful world. We already, our hearts already don't trust God. And then we live in a sinful world where we're hurt by other people and we see confirmation. I shouldn't trust God. I knew I shouldn't have trusted him. But Jesus is teaching us to trust again. His spirit is forming in us hearts of trust so that we can trust him, trust his purposes, trust his people, and trust his promises because he is good and wise, and above all, Jesus is worthy of our trust. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we uh, thank you f- uh, for these old stories, and we, we realize that how similar we are to these people living in 1000 BC. The human nature is... Uh, distrustful of you, his uh, judges, and uh, that we separate from those that we should depend on and listen to. And, uh, and yet, Lord, we see also how you are unchanging, and you, uh, you are God who is worthy of our trust. And we pray that our church would be a place where you are gathering all kinds of people, that they, we would come here and know what it is to soften our hearts, to trust you, and to let others into our lives. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.